Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud Podcast, book four. Today we'll be reading chapter two, but first, a recap of chapter one. So last episode, we started book four, the Mysterious Benedict Society, the Mysterious Benedict Society and the Riddle of Ages. We started with Rennie in his personal study when a mysterious little boy burst into the room. His name, as he informed Rennie, is Ty, and for some reason, he knows all about the Mysterious Benedict Society and all of its members. Rennie has apparently been receiving a lot of letters from universities asking him to attend their school. Sticky, who was in his own room, and Rennie got a message from Kate saying she was coming in for a landing on the roof. The boys both raced to the roof along with Ty to move a bunch of chemicals accidentally left up there so Kate could land safely. Kate did land safely and greeted everyone, and soon after Constance showed up, and just like that, the society was reconvened. Chapter 2. A Kind of History, or the Nature of the Mess As many things seem to do, the appearance of Constance Contraire, prodigious telepath, reluctant genius, accomplished composter of rude poetry, drew a gasp from Tai Lai. In this case, the little boy was surprised by the way she looked. Over the last two days, as she had mentally guided him on his journey to Stonetown, Constance had kept him entertained by recounting the adventures of the society. But in those tales, she had been very young, even younger than he was himself. And although he knew that years had passed since the dark days of the society's first mission, Ty's only mental image of Constance was of the girl she portrayed herself to be back then. Small, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and rather on the round side. Thus, the girl who appeared in the stairway looked nothing like the girl he'd been imagining. Ty had no doubt it was Constance, however. Her crankiness was unmistakable, and he flew to her with an excited squeak. "'Good grief, you're filthy,' Constance muttered as he flung his arms around her but nonetheless she gave him a good long squeeze. The current version of Constance was, to tie, a fascinating hodgepodge of features. The bright blue eyes of their earlier years had changed, as young children's blue eyes often do, and were now an intermediate mixture of blue, green, and gray. Likewise, her wispy blonde hair had darkened into a light shade of brown, another common change. But in Constance's case, she had promptly begun to dye it extremely uncolored colors. It was currently a shoulder-length mop of scarlet, she was much taller than Ty, though shorter than her friends, and much to his delight she was wearing a very baggy green plaid suit, which was quite familiar to him from her stories. "'You're wearing one of Mr. Benedict's old suits!' he exclaimed, running around to her to admire the outfit from all sides. "'The kind you said he used to wear to keep him calm!' "'Yes, well,' Constance said, holding out her hand to stop him circling, which was making her dizzy. "'I've been in serious need of some calming lately,' Number two altered the size for me, as much as possible, anyway. Ty could picture number two, that brisk young woman with her yellowish complexion, her affinity for yellow clothing, and her eraser red hair. And he knew that, like Constance, number two was one of Mr. Benedict's adopted daughters. And then, like everyone else who had been drawn into Mr. Benedict's circle, she was uniquely talented. But he hadn't realized that she knew how to use the sewing machine. And upon discovering this now, he gasped. Constance rolled her eyes. Really? Is it working? asked Ty, evidently immune to sarcasm. Is the suit keeping you calm? Don't I seem calm to you? Ty frowned. Maybe you should get a hat, too. Maybe I should. During this exchange, the three older members of the society were trading glances and shaking their heads. It seemed as though everything in the world were happening at once. I don't see how we're ever going to get caught up, Kate said. Stick, uh, sorry, George, do we need to take care of this mess right now? Will the chemicals eat through the roof or anything? It can wait, Sticky said. Ray and I should just secure the dangerous ones. The rest, 
Okay, why are you looking at me like that, Kate? Kate put on an innocent expression. Like what? Oh, sorry, it's just that I know I haven't been away that long, but I'd already forgotten about your new spectacles. You look so stylish. To be honest, it's kind of distracting. Oh, please, Sticky said, grimacing. Can we please not do this again? He gave Rennie a warning look, but it did no good. She's right, said Rennie with a serious air. He tilted his head to one side, then to the other. They're so perfect on you. Something about the symmetry, I think. It's like you're a magazine advertisement. I can't help it, Sticky said, feeling, as usual, a flustering combination of embarrassment and pleasure. Ever since he'd reverted to his bald, bespeckled look, abandoning the contact lenses and varying hairstyles of recent years, his friends had been able to resist teasing him for being suddenly, noticeably handsome. Even now, they were sneaking amused glances at each other, or pretending to sneak glances at any rate, for Sticky's benefit. And at a moment, he said, You know I can see you're doing that. In the next moment, the three of them were laughing, even before the crisis of the last couple days. There had been significant tension and no small degree of sadness among the three friends. The result of developing plans. Rennie's, Sticky's, and Kate's alike, that had been put a strain on their long-established, easy way with one another. The shared laughter came as a great relief to all of them. For the moment, it almost felt like nothing had changed. Is this not an emergency? Constance snapped from the stairwell, and their laughter fell away. Do we even have a plan? Of course we do, Kate replied cheerfully. We're going to find a way to stop the baker's dozen from breaking out Mr. Curtin. Without, you know, getting hurt by them in the process, Stiggy put in. Definitely, said Rennie. That's definitely an important part of the plan. Constance stared. And that's it? Well, we need to sort out the details, Kate admitted, which we can do over lunch. It was decided that Kate would hustle down to the kitchen while Stiggy and Rennie carried the chemicals to the basement lab, or the blab, as Kate insisted on calling it, though the term had yet to catch on. Constance grudgingly accepted a forehead kiss from Kate, also grudgingly agreed to help Ty wash his hands. After we ate, Kate informed Ty, you'll be taking a bath, maybe two baths. Okay, Ty cried, as if nothing sounded more wonderful than two baths. He pointed at Kate's parachute, snagged on the broken railing and fluttering in the breeze. But don't you need to put your thing away? I'll do that after lunch, too, Kate said with a wink. Maybe we'll all clean up while you're cleaning up. Ty giggled, then grew serious again. But what if someone sees it? With a raised eyebrow, Kate looked at Constance. He knows we're keeping a low profile, Constance said. It's supposed to just look like Captain Plug is staying here, Ty said. That's what Constance told me. Kate plucked up his chin. That's right. You're very smart to be so careful. Don't worry. Nobody can see up here to this patio. We made sure of that long ago. Great, said Ty, being in from the compliment. Can we go down the same way I came up? That was fun. For you, Constance grumbled. You two go ahead, said Kate, gesturing at the platform where Sticky and Rennie were now waiting with their beakers. I'll take the stairs. Approximately two seconds later, already on the third floor, Kate could hear the rattling of the platform machine kicking into gear. With a quick window peek to verify that her falcon Madge had settled onto a favorite branch in the elm tree, Kate slid down the stairway banister, polished smooth from countless previous slides, and landed at a run. Above her platform was settling into place, and as she disappeared down the long hallway, Kate heard Ty asking if they could do it again. The dining room, situated on the second floor of Mr. Benedict's house, had never been tidy. Like all the other rooms in the house, its walls were lined with cluttered bookshelves, and in order to sit at a long table or any other available chair, one usually had to move a newspaper or book. Yet the room's present state of disarray was such that Kate, on her way into the kitchen, felt compelled to stop and take it all in. The magnitude of the mess was remarkable, for sure, but what froze Kate in her tracks and caught at his heart, what a nature of the mess. 
the multitude of dirty dishes on the table, the forgotten reading glasses on an open newspaper, the abandoned needlework in the corner easily chair, all signs of a happy, busy day suddenly and alarmingly interrupted. Given what she'd been told and what she saw before now, Kate's mind had no trouble conjuring the scene. Most of their community or family and friends would have been in this room when news of the breakout reached them. For those Sticky and his parents lived in the house across the street, and the Permal family, Rennie and his mother and grandmother, had their own quarters downstairs. As a general practice, everyone converged here to take their midday meal together. Mucho Brazos, the former circus strongman and much-admired cook, always prepared something delicious. He had rooms in the basement, as did Kate and her father Milligan. And the wonderful aromas emitting from the kitchen signaled the approach of hubbub and laughter, as surely as any clock could. So it had been for years now. And yet change had been in the air lately, as unmistakable as the scent of Mucho's baked apple pies, though not as sweet. Bittersweet was the word for it. Rennie had joked some time ago that perhaps they should acquire a taste for the bittersweet. But it was not a taste easily acquired. When Rana Kanzabe had moved out, for instance, everyone was happy for her. She'd married a charming physicist and seemed delighted about the development. The couple were moving to a different city, where they both had excellent job opportunities at laboratories. They had plans to start a family. It was all good news, and Rhonda remained in close touch. Nonetheless, her departure had prompted many a tear, and her absence was still felt. And that had been just the beginning. There was much more in the works. It wasn't long after Rhonda's departure that Rennie had begun to receive those extraordinary university invitations. And then, as enough that we're all trying to make sense of this new development, Sticky had been offered something even more remarkable, a chance to direct, not just work at, but run, the most important chemistry lab in the country. The position would be open in the fall. If Sticky took it, he would be, not surprisingly, the youngest person ever to have held it. He would make history. Kate's own aspiration, meanwhile, was by its nature not the sort of thing to make headlines. Her success could never be measured by fame, for her plan was to become, like her father before her, a secret agent. Not just any secret agent either, but a top special agent in Milligan's own agency. She was already well on her way. All these new possibilities, so pleasing to contemplate on their own, had sent everyone's mind spinning, for every possibility came at a cost. Even a single departure spelled the end of the society as they had known it, and each of its members felt a kind of horror at the prospect of being the first to open the door, the one responsible for ending what they had. But all consideration of what might be coming next had been rudely interrupted two days earlier, when bad news arrived in this very room. The impossible had happened. The infamous villains, known as the Tin Men, so-called for their reputation of having ten ways to hurt you, had been broken out at the Citadel to Edinburgh City. Kate and Milligan, who had been away on the intelligence-gathering mission, got the word first. Thirteen Tin Men, current whereabouts unknown, but certainly headed for Stonetown. That's a bad baker's dozen, Kate had muttered grimly, and thus was the moniker born. She'd known at once who was behind the breakout. The fact that several top agents in the Stonetown area had been ambushed in recent months, sending every one of them to a high-security hospital, was the reason she and Milligan had gone to do their sleuthing in the first place. Those ambushes had been executed by the last two uncaptured tinmen, and notoriously elusive Katz brothers. The brothers' gift for always smelling a trap and always avoiding it had led to their being nicknamed, by Kate, of course, the Scaredy Cats. It was the Cats, naturally, who had just freed the other tinmen. But how? The brothers had never engaged in risky confrontations before, and said they'd been known to be secretly looking for someone. They had been at it for years, but exactly whom have remained a mystery. After the ambushes started, that mystery was what Kate and Milligan had gone to investigate. They had just hit upon a kind of answer, too, when they learned of the scaredy-cat's mystifying, successful breakout operation of the Citadel. 
The agent reporting to Milligan could rely on a single tantalizing clue. Some guards swore they accounted 14 figures fleeing the site. 14, not 13. The rest of the guards had all been unconscious and could not confirm. Regardless, Kate had said to Milligan, if they're headed to Stonetown, we know what they're planning to do. I'd have to agree with you there, Katie Cat, her brother replied. They hadn't even needed to say it out loud. The Tin Man's plan, no doubt, will be to infiltrate Stonetown's brand new maximum security facility and break out its only current prisoner, the most dangerous genius in history, their former employer, Lethodra Kern. With Mr. Curtin free again, the threat of the Baker's Dozen would be magnified exponentially. Their unique talents for violence, paired with his terrible brilliance, had once almost changed the world. Almost. That word pertained only thanks to the society, and therefore the Baker's Dozen probably also had revenge in mind. They were ten men after all. They wouldn't have taken kindly to the role Mr. Benedict and his associates played in their capture. What troubled Kate and Milligan most, however, was that the ten men knew about Constance. A telepath, especially one who hated them, might well endanger their future schemes. The Baker's Dozen would surely make it a priority to eliminate any such threat. Milligan had radioed Mr. Benedict's house. It's happened, he said to number two, less than an hour ago. Waste no time. And just like that, the meal was over. Life as they had known it was over. And whether it would ever be the same again, or even close, would depend on what happened next. Kate took one last look around the mess, at the evidence of the life they'd been leaving. Then she moved on to the kitchen. It was not at all her style to leave dirty dishes on the table, but these she would leave just a little bit longer. A few minutes later, on Kate's suggestion, the society members and young Tai Lai carried their sandwiches down the hall to the sitting room, where the untidiness was more typical and therefore less depressing. On the contrary, the familiarity of the room was a comfort. The piano in the corner, the grandfather clock, and the giant globe, now looked outdated, sat exactly where they had on the first day the society members set foot inside this room. The very same day they had met one another. The books on the crowded bookshelves were the same books. The same paintings hung on the walls. One painting was of an observatory, the other on a boy on a bluff. Both featured starry skies, and both, Mr. Benedict had told them, were the work of a childhood friend. The sitting room was kind of a history itself, a history of new friendships and lasting ones alike. Ty Lai admired everything, examining the piano, spinning the globe, pointing up at the paintings, which were, fortunately, out of reach for his fingers. I can see the Big Dipper in that one, he declared. It's the consultation in the sky above the boy. Well, it's Orion's, he corrected gently, but you're right, that is a constellation, whereas the Big Dipper, strictly speaking, is what we call an aneurysm, which... I can see Orion, Ty cried, looking over her shoulder at Constance for approval. Nice work, Constance mumbled wearily as she settled into the rug. The others joined her. They were all hungry, and for a minute or so there was scant talking and a great deal of chewing. The sandwiches were variously loaded with vegetables, cheeses, lunch meats, and condiments, each according to the taste of the person for whom Kate had assembled it for. For Ty, she'd taken a successful gamble on peanut butter and jelly. And after noting the others' differing compliments and expressions of thanks, Ty realized that something extraordinary seemed to have occurred in the time it had taken him to wash his hands. Cake, he said, meaning to say Kate, but with a mouthful of peanut butter. Were these sandwiches already made? No, and thank goodness, Kate replied. The kitchen was a nightmare. I would have eaten anything prepared in there, not until I'd gotten the place cleaned up first. At this, Ty's eyes grew huge, and he swiveled them around to see anyone else was astonished that Kate had done so much quickly. No one seemed to be. How in the world did it get that bad? Kate pressed, likely likes looking at the others. I know things have been crazy since the evacuation, but that doesn't account for what I just saw in there. Do you realize it was a spoon stuck to the outside of the refrigerator? The outside! 
Rennie's Tiggy glared at Constance, then glanced away again and shrugged. Now was not the time to engage in a blame battle. The truth was they hadn't even seen Constance in the last two days. She'd been holed up in her room, and they'd been too busy dealing with their present crisis to try and draw her out. The mounting mess in the kitchen, evidence of her nightmare raids, had actually been a source of reassurance. Yes, it was annoying to find globs of jelly in the silverware drawer, empty ice cream cartons in the cupboard, and the floor so mysteriously sticky it almost pulled one's shoes off. But at least they knew Constance was alive and eating. Never mind, said Kate, who could guess the answer easily enough. Let's get up to speed. I have things to tell you, but I want to hear more about how it all went down here and when the news hit. And of course, we all need to hear about this. Kate waved her sandwich in the direction of Constance and Ty, who was sitting next to each other on the floor. They were all on the floor, in fact, for it was the society's long-established custom to begin serious discussions at ground level and seated in a circle. Let the boys go first, Constance said. I want to finish eating. She seemed to be about to say something else, then checked herself and shot a warning look at Ty, who nonetheless burst into a grin. You were going to say a rhyme, he exclaimed, something to do with liver rust. Is that what's on your sandwich? And oh, Ty looked at Sticky and Rennie and clapped a hand over his mouth. I'd better not say the last part. Oh no, Sticky said. The insulting poems are back? Constance shrugged. He thinks they're funny. The apparent return of Constance's rude, verifying a habit, she seemed to have broken long ago, was disappearing the others. But in silent accord, they let the matter drop, for Constance too often took protests as an encouragement. I know you are in the middle of lunch when Milligan radioed, said Kate, getting the conversation back on track. Tell me what happened. It was such an odd moment, said Sticky. There were three different conversations going on as usual. The number two charged in with the news. She said, it's evacuation plan A, and every single person in the room looked at the clock. Mr. Benedict had different emergency plans for packing up and leaving, Rennie explained to Ty, depending on how much time we had. Oh, Ty said, nodding. He took a bite of his sandwich. Number two saved most of the details about the breakout until we were all ready to go, Stig went on. And honestly, I never would have guessed that could happen so quickly and so calmly. My parents, the Permals, Mutro, no one hesitated. Everybody put down what was in their hands. Then for about 20 seconds, everyone went around hugging everybody else. And then we all hurried to our rooms to pack. Kate was shaking her head. I wish I could have seen it. So strange. After all these peaceful years, and then... She snapped her fingers. Everybody out. Actually, I guess I'm glad I wasn't here. I was supposed to be there a fair amount of crying. There were a few tears when he said. Quiet tears, though. Nobody broke down. Sticky opened his mouth to interject something. Thought better of it and disguised his original intention by cramming the last of his sandwich into his mouth. He chewed the impressive focus, resisting the urge to glance at Constance, who technically perhaps had not broken down, but who had certainly had broken things. Rennie, to avoid a mention of Constance's tantrums, discussing the evacuation without upsetting Constance all over again was going to be tricky enough, for she had grown quite furious with Rennie and Sticky that day, and was very likely furious with them still. It seemed only wise to proceed with special caution as they continued their account. Trunks and suitcases had been packed and loaded into taxicabs. A stream of farewells were made to Captain Plug, who promised to do her utmost to safeguard their homes. It was understood that if any tenement entered the picture, however, the guard's orders were to prioritize her own safety. Curious neighbors waved to the caravan of taxicabs drove away down the street. Mr. Benedict's strange little community was well-liked throughout the neighborhood, but not at all understood. It was widely assumed that this mass departure of taxicab would simply signal the beginning of some kind of weird vacation. The taxis, driven by Milligan's most trusted sentries, had proceeded directly to Stonetown Harbor, where the evacuees expected to wait for the arrival of the MB Shortcut 2, the world's fastest cargo ship, piloted by old friends Captain Nolan and his energetic first mate Joe Cannibal Shooter.
As it happened, though, there was no waiting to be done. Against all probability, the ship had already arrived, and in a great whirl of activity, crew members were dispatched, dock workers were employed, and the families and all their luggage were aboard in a matter of minutes. Everyone, that is, except Mr. Benedict, who instead of joining the others, was heading straight to the high security facility where Mr. Curtin was imprisoned. It was this fact announced before the caravan's departure that had been the reason for Constance's tantrums. You're sure it's the best thing, Nicholas? Captain Nolan had asked, as the two lifelong friends, the brisk, trim, gray-haired ship captain and the disheveled, gentle, white-haired genius, shook hands on the dock. There's no one else who can implement those emergency security measures? I'm afraid not, Phil, Mr. Benedict replied. Don't worry, though. I'll be as safe in that facility as anywhere in the world. Until this unfortunate situation is resolved, I'll remain there and keep my brother company. I sometimes forget Curtin is your twin, said Captain Nolan, shaking his head. It's hard to imagine anyone more different from you. I do earnestly hope you succeed in keeping him locked up. In the meantime, I promise to keep your people safe and comfortable. You have my word too, Mr. Benedict, cried Cannonball Shooter, striding up to join them. I've laid in the best possible physicians, and plenty of them. We're all completely up to speed on the communication protocol. There's not a ten men alive who could find us in the middle of that big, beautiful ocean. And even if they did, they couldn't catch us, ha-ha. I have no doubt, Joe, said Mr. Benedict, warmly shaking his hand. I'm indebted to both of you. Oh, Nicholas, as for that, said Captain Nolan, you know very well that the debt runs in the opposite direction. It was at this point, as Mr. Benedict took his leave, and Constance, running and sticky, looked down from the ship's deck, that Constance had said in a tight, desperate voice, Captain Nolan's afraid I'll never see Nicholas again. The young man understood at once that Constance, intentionally or not, had read Captain Nolan's thoughts. This would have been clear enough as she had not re referred to Mr. Benedict as Nicholas instead of Dad, which was what she called him since the day of her adoption. After years of training to avoid accidentally reading others' minds, Constance still couldn't help it sometimes. Her friends and family members had likewise learned how to keep their most private thoughts better guarded when Constance was in the room. But at a time like this, an untrained mind and high emotion would always pull at Constance's mental attention like a powerful magnet. He may be afraid of that, Sticky said quickly, putting a hand on Constance's shoulder, but that doesn't make it true, right? You know that. It's going to be okay. Rennie, for his part, had felt his own mental gear suddenly cracking at a high velocity. Because of those years of training, it had been quite a while since he'd witnessed Constance reading another person's mind. Now that he had felt some kind of answer emerging. But what was the question? As Mr. Benedict waved goodbye to them, and Sticky did his best to comfort Constance, Rennie concentrated. He needed to figure something out, and he needed to do it right away. He could tell. Yet there was so much commotion as Cannonball whisked Mr. Benedict away on a motorized cart, and the dock workers and crew members swarmed the gangway, and Captain Nolan shouted his announcement that they would be launching soon as the ship had finished refueling, that Rennie had felt the need to steal away by himself. He'd gone below, letting himself into the captain's quarters, which they had been urged to treat like their own home, and was sitting at the captain's desk when suddenly it all came clear to him. The truth behind the Tin Man's breakout. The explanation for the mysterious success of the Scaredy Cat's ambushes. The importance of the 14th figure. Everything fit together at once. Leaping from his chair, Rennie started for the door, then checked himself. There was no way he could catch up with Mr. Benedict now, even if he were allowed off the ship, which we would not be. Yet, Mr. Benedict wouldn't need help. He felt sure of it. And here in this moment, when everything mattered the most, Rennie couldn't just sit by and hope for the best. And so, he had formed his plan. Thank you.